Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The Great Dismal Swamp is a remarkable feature of the southern coastal plain. Spanning from Norfolk, Virginia to Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the swamp is now a national wildlife refuge home to bald cypress, black bears, otters, and over 200 species of birds, among many other critters. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was the home to the ambitions of planters and businessmen who sought to transform the swamp into a plantation enterprise of rice, timber, and other commodities. It was also home to the enslaved individuals who labored to make those dreams a reality. Yet the natural landscape, combined with the circumstances of the white-owned companies who controlled the swamp, created opportunities for the enslaved to resist their bondage and even self-emancipate into the swamp's rugged interior. And like the Jamaican Maroons who sought security in the island's central mountains, some enslaved Virginians found a city of refuge in the Great Dismal Swamp. These acts of resistance were, as today's guest explains, a form of petite marinage in a region that experienced more continuity than change from the colonial era to the eve of the American Civil War. On today's show, Dr. Marcus P. Nevis joins me to discuss his new book, City of Refuge, Slavery and Petite Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp, 1765-1856, to published by the University of Georgia Press in 2020. Nevis is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Rhode Island and a 2020 Washington Library Research Fellow. I caught up with him over Zoom as he was completing some research on the Great Dismal Swamp and the Revolutionary Era. Before we get started, just a programming note that will be off for Thanksgiving next week. We hope you and your family have a safe and enjoyable holiday. It's going to be a little different this year, but we'll get through it. And if you're so inclined, please take next week to catch up on any episodes you might have missed and share your favorites with your family. We'd love to be part of any dinner conversations about the past while you try to avoid talking about the present. And with that, let's seek a city of refuge in the Great Dismal Swamp with Marcus P. Nevis. When I was reading your book, I was thinking about uh, a project I had in mind years ago about a place called the Black Swamp in Ohio. And sort of a similar questions arose in my mind. uh, This is, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago at this point. Now I'm dating myself. But at one point, I was really interested in environmental history, and I thought, well, that would be kind of an interesting project to do because there isn't a whole lot of work on the early republic in environmental history. Turned out, couldn't find a whole lot of sources on it, or at least I didn't uh, didn't decide to pursue that as a topic. But the Great Dismal Swamp is a much better known piece of land, and if folks have read about it, perhaps they've read Charles Royster's fabulous history of the Great Dismal Swamp, sort of a big, gigantic yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I thought as we as a way to get into this, we might talk about the Great Dismal Swamp as a physical place before we get into the sort of human activity and, and human agency you see in this space. Just as sort of a foundation for the audience, would you mind laying out what this looks like as a place, as an environmental feature of the landscape? Sure. It has, of course, a, a really long history uh, that dates back millennia. But as it relates to the company records that undergird City of Refuge, Um, At the time of the American Revolution and the early 19th century, it covered about 2,000 square miles, which approached the southern end of uh, downtown Norfolk and downtown Portsmouth on the northern end. And then on the southeastern end, it approached Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And on the southwestern end, after its establishment in the 1760s, Suffolk, Virginia, basically covering today what is the western portion of Virginia Beach all the way across to the city of Chesapeake and including parts of Suffolk today. It is a beautiful, beautiful landscape. I actually um, was attached to historical archeologist Dan Sayers mm-hmm. field school out of American University in 2013. He was taking undergraduates out into the swamp to learn to study the landscape as archeologists do and as he had done in his work. And in this experience, first of all, it was late May and early June. So it was getting hot in Southern Virginia and humid. But there's a wide variety of landscapes, uh, in part changed over time due to drainage schemes in the post-Civil War era, Mm -hmm. which today leave a landscape that's much drier, uh, that's much more devoid of the various tree species that have once been there. But it's still, by that same token, uh, a swamp and very much an inaccessible landscape with regard to actually finding your way in unless you follow one of the 20th century towpaths or 
you decide to take up a machete and hack your way in from, from a different angle. But it's a landscape that involves a, a wide range of insects, uh, reptiles, bird species, uh, amphibian species, black bears. There's a small population of black bears that oh. today the United States uh, Wildlife Service preserves and other mammals. And that's a beautiful butterfly. And, and I would be remiss not to say also the other side of that coin. Lots of insects and arachnids that will sting you and, and, and inject you with venom and <laughs> clouds of mosquitoes and ticks that seem if you follow the same path every day to learn that you will arrive so that they can drop down on your head oh. from the trees above. But all in all, it's um, a very interesting and vibrant environment and ecology. I do want to ask you something about the trees because the shingling pays, uh, plays a big part of your story. And I, I have a passing interest in trees right now because I'm in the middle of thinning some of the woods behind my house. And so I've been, I've been using the chainsaw quite frequently and in getting to know my, uh, my native Virginia tree species. And so I was curious to know what kind of tree species were in the swamp that, that a lot of the individuals in your story, and particularly the corporations, were so interested in. Sure, the corporations were largely interested in white pine and cypress. And both prior to the 1840s, I think I would date it, were, were very, very much widely available in the swamp. Uh, the cypress trees, you think of the traditional sort of cypress trees that you would also see along the Gulf Coast, but much smaller in this version, much shorter, much more narrow. Mm -hmm but still um, at the water's edge where these tree species are often found, still reflecting the same sort of, I guess, uh, arrangement. So you see the, the, the cypress knees that you would think of in other parts of the American Southeast. The pine species were very much cut and significantly removed throughout the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So what you find there today are younger pine species, white pine especially, that reflect a much narrower uh, collection of pine trees that were previously found in the swamp. And then a wide range of subtropical, mid-continental tree species too that are less distinctive, but very much reflective of mm -hmm. the tree species of the American Southeast as well. Well, it sounds like a fascinating place. And as you describe it, uh, notwithstanding the ticks and the mosquitoes, quite beautiful. The, the title of your book is City of Refuge. You know, this idea that this place becomes a city of refuge for enslaved people. And can you, can you tell us what that means? I must admit here that I was less interested in sort of tracing the literary history of the term city of refuge, but mm -hmm. in my efforts to at least use it to contextualize this story, the term itself, city of refuge, has this deeper religious connotation that traces to uh, the biblical era of the removal of the Israelites, I think, from enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians. And it sort of returns in the 19th century way of describing the experiences of enslaved people who take it upon themselves to self-emancipate. Mm -hmm. uh, and in so doing, especially gathering in groups of runaways or maroons in the Great Dismal Swamp and other parts of North America, it becomes a refrain that some abolitionists use, which is also a part of a longer phrase a city of refuge in the midst of slavery to make abundantly clear that enslaved people who steal their own bodies and run away to these remote but proximate landscapes, what they were ultimately attempting to do was engage in this, at least in the eyes of some 19th century contemporaries, some of whom I cite, uh, they're really attempting to engage in a sort of spiritual activity that although it can't change the circumstances of slavery around them, it can sort of deliver their bodies in these spaces of freedom that they're able mm -hmm. to carve out by which they might create a city of freedom. So I thought we might take a step back and think about some of the concepts that you've just laid out and what you lay out as petite marinage. Because you mentioned maroons just a second ago and, and we had Vincent Brown on our live stream in the podcast a few weeks ago or a few months ago actually at this point thinking about the enslaved population of Jamaica and the maroon communities that developed in the interior part of the island in the 18th century. And it sounds like there's a similar parallels where they, they are carving out spaces for themselves and building communities in amidst a sea of slavery. Uh, and similar processes are taking shape here in the Great Dismal Swamp in the 18th and 19th centuries. So can you kind of distinguish what you see between this idea of, of 
the maroon communities in a place like Jamaica and what they are able to achieve and the what the enslaved populations they're able to achieve in your story through this idea of petite marinage? It's probably important to begin with the, the binary itself, the mm-hmm. grand marinage binary versus the petite marinage binary, which traces to the scholarship of Gabriel Debian in the mid 20th century, who was essentially a scholar of Caribbean uh, culture and attempting to distinguish between larger scale slave flight, which becomes marinage in places like Jamaica and much smaller scale marinage, uh, which doesn't ultimately result in these large communities of people who are essentially freed by virtue of treaty with colonizing powers. And in that latter context, you might consider St. Croix, for example, in the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico in the Spanish context in the 19th century, wherein groups of self-emancipators did engage in marinage, but were not necessarily large enough to elicit military response that ultimately produces treaties that protect freedom for Maroons who carve out space in places like the Jamaican mountains, uh, but also bind them to certain responsibilities such as rejecting the entry of any new groups of enslaved people who try to join those communities, which of course was species at best. And I think it's interesting to engage with Vince Brown's work here too, because mm-hmm. uh, he, he's recently written the book, uh, Tacky's Revolt, which seeks to reframe the way that we engage uh, black resistance really in Jamaica in order to understand it as a very important site of warfare in the broader context of the Seven Years' War, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is that there's great evidence of the ways in which in the primary record, the self-emancipating people of African descent of Jamaica are engaged in military tactics against British forces on the island in that time period, in the mid 18th century. And this is years, 20 years or more after they'd already achieved a treaty of peace after the first Maroon Wars of the late 1730s. Mm-hmm. The story is much different in most of North America and especially in the Chesapeake. For one, the population demographics were not such that you had nearly 200,000 people of African descent held as slaves on a, an island 400 square miles in size by comparison to 18,000 people who were white. <laughs> Those population demographics just did not exist in Virginia, although in some of the southeastern counties of Virginia and some of the southeastern parishes, uh, the population demographics were as much as 40 to close to 50% Black. That was perhaps, in my view, the strongest mitigating factor against large-scale marinage, but this also didn't mean that enslaved people in southeastern Virginia and northeastern North Carolina and other parts of the Chesapeake didn't seek to engage in proximate, difficult-to-access terrain as did self-emancipating people throughout the Caribbean and the Gulf South. And so that's sort of the basis for uh, the way in which I situate the geography of the Great Dismal Swamp compared to the Caribbean and other places that other scholars uh, engage. And it's also the way that I sort of answer the question, which was raised by a number of astute readers as City of Refuge was going through the editorial process, as to why, if Maroons were perceived to be so threatening elsewhere, were they not perceived to be that way in the Great Dismal Swamp? Why is there, in other words, little to no evidence of militia, organized militia campaigns against the Maroons in the Dismal? And the answer to that basic question is twofold. Perhaps the best evidence of that moment happened very early on in the 18th century as I cover in the the prologue with the Chesapeake Rebellion of 1730. The story changes after that. And it becomes a situation where Due to the pressures against direct transportation of enslaved Africans to Virginia in the 18th century, by contrast to Jamaica, you don't have that large population that would act in a similar way. But then also, and this is where I think City of Refuge perhaps has a novel contribution, also do with the caveat, the careful caveat that reading the records of land and canal companies don't always reveal the full truth of the violence and fear Mm -hmm. at operation in any slavery context. Those caveats aside, 
there was no evidence really at all of that sort of violent, repressive slavery in the records of the Great Dismal Swamp Companies, plural. We can buttress that by looking at Moses Grandy's narrative and seeing the ways in which he describes the conditions of slave labor in the swamp. But by the same token, slave resistance in the Great Dismal Swamp doesn't seem to reach the level of tension as it does elsewhere. And I think that's, that in part helps to explain the characterization of the Great Dismal Swamp mm-hmm. as a city of refuge as well. It's all really fascinating, and I'm, I'm excited to talk more about how you read evidence, actually. I want to get into that because that's you know one of the challenges of, of reconstructing a history like this is you're only getting one side largely, and you've got to, got to really read between the lines. And so I want, to, I want to look at that in a bit. But then building off you know, what you were just talking about, particularly how certain scholars have written about uh, slavery or thought about maroon communities or, or petite or grand marinage. I'm wondering how how you see this fitting into the larger conversation historians are having about slavery. And I ask because, you know, I often don't talk about footnotes on the show, but if, if anyone's looking for a comprehensive bibliography of of slave studies over the last probably 30 years, you know, the footnotes in your your prologue and in your, in your first chapter are a really good source for to go to. And so as I was thumbing through them, I thought, well, I'm going to ask that question because I want to know, you know, how you were thinking about this as you were writing this book. Sure. First of all, thank you for that that compliment. That is uh, like catnip to an historian, right? <laughs> um, so I appreciate that. Um, so I actually came to this project deeply interested in the history of Black resistance. Mm-hmm. And part of explaining that interest is personal. It's, it's my own personal biography, right? I was born in central New Jersey uh, in the early 1980s of parents who worked for the United States Postal Service, good middle-class sort of foundation. But my father <laughs> had had an interesting experience growing up near Princeton, New Jersey, of engaging with, in a very small way, the modern civil rights movement and the Black freedom struggle in that part of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the interesting story that he always likes to share and that a few scholars have actually become interested in too in the subject was the day that he <laughs> was selected to try to integrate a white barbershop in, in Princeton because of his hair type. Mm-hmm. The premise being that his hair type was not as tightly curled as uh, other Black people, and therefore he could walk into that barbershop and the barber couldn't necessarily claim that he didn't know how to cut my father's hair. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's what happened anyway, and it became a thing that was published locally. So as a, a, a kid and as a young adult, I had these sort of competing tensions, right? Like my father had this early history, and then eventually he he settles down and goes to work for the post office, a very sort of traditional, albeit with its own tensions, middle-class job. And then I went to North Carolina, where I engaged in my undergraduate and uh, master-level studies at North Carolina Central University and HBCU, where I began to learn, as an undergraduate especially, about the long Black freedom struggle, not necessarily in the context of different scenes of public activism, but also by virtue of scholarly activism mm-hmm. or by virtue of really the biography of, of an historian like the eminent John Hope Franklin, whose earliest research was limited literally to a broom closet in the archives uh, throughout the South where he sought to engage with primary sources with the same level of access that his white peers might have had at the time. And so part of what I was attempting to do in the introduction is to pay a bit of scholarly homage to that by uh, engaging deeply with the scholarship of Black resistance as it provides a foundation for my book, City of Refuge. But then there's the other coin too, that some of John Hope Franklin's contemporaries, like Herbert Aptecker, were deeply interested in marinage and used to some degree uh, the language specifically marinage, citing certain uh, instances and literally cataloging in the archival record instances of marinage that were clear to Aptecker and some of his contemporaries, clearly different than other instances or forms of 
slave flight or self-emancipation. And so I, I was really attempting to ground City of Refuge in that sort of scholarly milieu because I think it serves a very interesting purpose for us today mm -hmm. that reminds us that's really the, the foundation of scholarly study of Marinage in the North American context. It's slightly different in the Caribbean because it becomes more of an anthropological and sociological approach given the various uh, descendant communities that remain today in places like Jamaica and Suriname, for example. But in North America, those descendant communities do not exist. And so I thought it valuable to really engage with that scholarship. Well, it's fascinating to think about too, because uh, you know one of the things you might see in literature or you know a lot of digital projects, you know they focus on the term slave runaway as opposed to slave resistance or, or self emancipation things like that. And so it seems like then part of what you're also doing is is moving forward with the terminology that more adequately describes what enslaved people themselves were doing, you know, to preserve some forms of community, but also to create new communities through the self emancipation, through acts of resistance, through attempting to mitigate or at least navigate a particular particularly brutal and horrible situation. Indeed. I think the language I settled on in City of Refuge is freedom seekers, mm -hmm. uh, which I draw from Jeff Kerr-Ritchie's, uh, one of Jeff Kerr-Ritchie's recent books on the subject. But the language is still shifting even today. That's a good mm -hmm. point that you bring up because you hear me today in this interview using language like self-emancipators, which is where I see uh, much of the scholarship today settling, um, even in a slight linguistic shift or terminology shift from freedom seekers to self-emancipators. Mm -hmm. The idea driving that, as you say, is to perhaps more accurately or adequately describe the politics of slave flight, not exactly the scholarly dimensions of slave flight or the degree to which enslaved people succeeded in flight, but the actual politics that we can understand and perhaps project to some degree with some degree of scholarly carefulness. But it's a real politics of freedom that slave runaway or slave fugitive, the language of earlier scholarship, doesn't adequately capture. Well, they're certainly seeking freedom from a variety of things, including slavery, uh, but also from the kind of labor that you know, white proprietors are trying to make them do in this place called the Great Dismal Swamp. And so as a way to get into that and some of the, the labor that they are performing, but also the ways in which they are using whatever opportunities they have to seek freedom in this space. What were the objectives of white investors like George Washington, like others, the prominent Virginians and North Carolinians who wanted to transform or use the swamp in a certain way? What were they after? The objectives change over time and as I've traced in in my research, right? Mm -hmm. In the period before the American Revolution and essentially before the 1790s, the objectives were twofold. They were first to actually survey the swamp and to delineate within the swamp uh, land plots, much the same as had taken place all throughout much of the rest of the Chesapeake. And then in turn to enter these plots in local county courts so that they could be legally protected. Establishing a plot then turned the Dismal Swamp Company, for example, who established their claim to a 40,000 acre plot in the swamp that they in turn subdivided or <laughs> defended against others from North Carolina who uh, claimed the same land, right? It, it then turned to, in the pre-Revolutionary War period, an effort to establish a plantation. The first such effort was Dismal Plantation in the early 1760s, which was envisioned as a rice and hemp producing plantation. What this meant for enslaved people, especially those who were dispatched in the 1760s, would have been the arduous work of first being dispatched, literally walking from wherever they'd been procured or purchased or forced even into the swamp to a location near Suffolk, Virginia. On site, they would have first had to fell trees in order to clear a land plot that could in turn be changed into this rice plantation that was envisioned. Uh, the work of producing a rice plantation involved digging ditches by hand and with small tools, which in the Great Dismal Swamp inevitably meant 
arduous labor by which one had to dig roots, deeply ingrained roots out of the soils. To be fair, the soils are much wetter in the swamp. So that work may not have been the same as in the Piedmont where the soils are drier, but it's still the arduous labor, digging in the soil, ditching in the soil, chopping wood, cutting down trees in the soil and the like. Rice plantation agriculture, especially in the 18th century, as scholars have definitively shown, also involved a heavy amount of ditch maintenance because these ditches were vital to irrigating the rice pads or flooding the rice pads, depending upon the season and depending upon the actual water needs. And so this is where I begin to trace the story of slave resistance in City of Refuge in part because that work enslaved people time and again refused. And it's clear that they refused it in the extant records of the company because company agents such as John Augustine Washington whose responsibility it was to ensure that this labor happened, wrote to company members complaining that they couldn't get this work to happen. And then aside from that, at Dismal Plantation, especially as I've been able to determine so far, the enslaved people also maintained smaller plots of land for subsistence and for locally grown produce, and also engaged in forms of animal husbandry. The end story, as I can tell it about Dismal Plantation so far, is that the rice enterprise failed, but the company's overall shift to an extractive economy of drawing trees, particularly pine and cypress, out of the swamp for the purpose of milling roofing shingles on the one hand and barrel staves mainly on the other. That begins to become the story of the 19th century companies. And that leads ultimately to an explosion of company interest uh, beyond the initial companies of the, the revolutionary era, which really becomes the story of the 19th century swamp. I want to go back for a minute to what you were talking about, uh, the differences between uh, maroon communities in places like Jamaica, where there was a serious military, ongoing military confrontation between, uh, you know, white settlers like the British and the enslaved communities or the formerly enslaved communities in the interior. And here, you had mentioned just a bit ago that there was, you know, in 1730s, uh, some militia activity, but then by the mid 18th century onward into the 19th century, there was more of a kind of, and I think you used the term accommodation, where the, the white proprietors of these companies realize that there isn't a whole lot that they can do well, there is a whole lot they can do, but they're, what they are able to make enslaved people do has a limit in that putting up with petite marinage is the price of doing business in this space. That, I think, is perhaps the other novel contribution of City of Refuge. Mm -hmm. And in part, I see it that way because the standing scholarship of the swamp generally either casts the Great Dismal Swamp as the foil to other zones of marinage in North America. I'm thinking of recent work by Matthew Clavin or uh, Nathaniel Millet, who take a look at the, the British fort at Prospect Bluff that ultimately becomes a maroon community in the 1810 in the context of the War of 1812, or the numerous efforts of scholars to lay bare the distinctions of marinage in the cypress swamps of Louisiana or in the context of ethnogenesis and the formation of uh, the Seminole communities of the Florida Peninsula. As far as I've been able to tell in my research, the Great Dismal Swamp is less a foil by comparison and more in and of itself, its own local regional context that at least as I attempt to do in City of Refuge, deserved a look keeping in mind the comparisons, but also with a direct focus on the conditions in that particular region. Mm -hmm. And the scholar who comes closest to this is uh, prior, I think, to City of Refuge, is Sylvian Biouf, who in Slavery's Exiles writes a chapter about the Great Dismal Swamp in that book. But that chapter, again, frames the Great Dismal Swamp in this broader context of marinage in North America. Her focus is North America broadly. What I think we learn in doing that is, is, is twofold. It returns us to the context in which the land speculators of George Washington's generation were actually operating. I 
see the Dismal Swamp Company and the Dismal Swamp Canal Company and the Dismal Swamp Land Company in much the same context as other companies, such as the Mississippi Land Company or the Chesapeake and Ohio Company or the Potomac Company. And in many cases, men like John Augustine Washington appear on several of these boards for working with these companies at the same time or in succession, right? So it, in that way, City of Refuge reminds us that we can't separate this story of Black resistance and marinage in the Great mm-hmm. Dismal Swamp from this broader story of what is actually happening in the early Republic. I think the other side of that coin too, and this is where I think my, my research is going currently, is that the Great Dismal Swamp's unique context for slave labor and slave resistance, it's very much a story of revolutionary era continuity. Nothing much changes. Mm -hmm. That is to say, in the years between the 1760s and the first decades of 19th century, except for the cast of characters who are operating at different swamp slave labor camp zones, and uh, the decisions that company members make to invest as they choose to invest. The story of Dismal Plantation largely draws to a close in part because the rice enterprise fails. The timber enterprise takes off, but as you cut down trees, you can only mill trees, old growth trees, especially in one zone of the swamp for so long before you have to move on. Mm -hmm. And in that same context of moving on, other companies and other outfits try to organize their efforts to find old growth swamp trees and to dispatch to those zones, in most cases, enslaved laborers. And so that, to me, is the, if there is a story of change, that to me is the story of change, but that's very much a 19th century story of change. Well, yeah, that's one of the fascinating things I found about your book, because, you know, it it does span this period from the 18th century to the early 19th century, and very easy to think about that time period as a moment of dramatic change, right, especially with the revolution. Well, you know, you declare independence, and suddenly everything looks different, everything changes, and you know, there's this new republic, and they're trying to figure out everything. But then in places like the Great Dismal Swamp, you know, as you said, not a whole lot changing, really. You know, new strategies, new, you know, trying to extract new products. But there was a very much of a clear continuity, I think, in your work. And I found that fascinating, because I, you know, I think it's easy to forget that for, for some people, some communities, some places, the revolution changes things on a large scale, but on a local scale, business as usual in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, to, to add to that, that's what the sources show, I believe. Frederick Douglass, who in the late 1840s reprints an article, which had appeared 20 years before in Boston in a, in a circular called the Zion's Herald, titles the article Slaves in the Dismal Swamp. That title alone, before you read the actual article and see the way in which it seeks to capture for its audiences in the 1820s, the persistence of slave labor in the Great Dismal Swamp, even as the national political narrative changes, it struck me. Mm-hmm. And it struck me, it struck me on two levels. On the one level that it appeared in Boston in the 1820s, like what? <laughs> but on another level that 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 Frederick Douglass, in his great wisdom, as we often celebrate, reprints this Mm -hmm. verbatim in order to, by the time we're engaging in the late 1840s, uh, broader national and international conversations about annexing Cuba, for example, or annexing Texas, that slavery in Virginia, especially in the Great Dismal Swamp, still looks much the same as it had Mm -hmm. previous. That's also why I choose to begin the book with Edmund Jackson's 1852 essay, the Virginia Maroons, mm-hmm. in part because it foregrounds a shift in the language that Edmund Jackson, as an abolitionist, chooses uh, to use to describe the Great Dismal Swamp. And he's doing this as a contemporary in the 1850s, describing Maroons in the Great Dismal Swamp, but casting them in a broader context of marinage in the Atlantic world. Mm-hmm. As he says, as, as you've read, I'm sure, that the Great Dismal Swamp's networks of swamp merchants and enslaved laborers look much the same as zones of marinage in Cuba, Jamaica, and Santo Domingo. And to me, I couldn't simply sit with with that essay and not foreground it 
in this broader local story because, and first of all, I should mention for, for your audiences, uh, Edmund Jackson himself is a rather obscure abolitionist who's operating in Boston, uh, the brother to a much more famous abolitionist named Francis Jackson. Uh, so he too is engaging Boston audiences in framing the Great Dismal Swamp as a zone of slavery, but just years after Frederick Douglass attempts it, he brings forth the language of Maranage. The choices that he makes are difficult to pin down because I haven't as of yet been able to uh, locate a library or a list of, of what he may have been reading in some way, shape or form. But I can, in having read just the Liberty Bell in which his other essays appear, trace in his biography a shift from more traditional essays that criticize slavery as a social and political ill or bringing to light segregation in Boston schools in the 1840s. Traditional essays that sort of point to more traditional framings for the problems of the early United States as a slaveholding republic. To shift in the early 1850s, after the Compromise of 1850 especially, to a language that is much more foregrounded in Black resistance to me meant something. And it demonstrated how he and others of his contemporaries saw in the Great Dismal Swamp an example that differed from other places. I want to dig more into the sources here because you know, a lot of your book does rest on these company records that you're talking about. And you know, we mentioned a few moments ago that one of the things you had to achieve in writing this book was to read against the grain and sort of look for the spaces in between where you were seeing these acts of Black resistance, of people self-emancipating, of of taking advantage of the city of refuge in important ways. And as I was reading your book, I was very much thinking about Pekahamalaman's Comanche Empire and the work that he had to do to reconstruct the history of a largely oral culture by looking at the peripheries where they have essentially contact points with you know, settlers in Texas and, and various other places in the West in the 19th century. How did you approach this process of, of reconstructing when you have sources that are only coming at it from one angle? I certainly first had to ground myself in some of the most recent scholarship of treating the archives with care and attending archival silence. And so Marisa Fuentes' Dispossessed Lives is one of the examples that to me demonstrated how the existing records of a history you seek to tell can often be used to provide evidence of the context you built, right, is one way that I would put it. And I can't speak for the way that she uh, would describe it, but that's the way that I at least interpreted it for helping me to understand better how to frame City of Refuge, right? For your audience's uh, benefit, Fuentes's book is about 17th century colonial Barbados and particularly about enslaved women in 17th century Barbados who appear in the records of that colony at that time in only glimpses. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she manages to reconstruct a really rich history of the context in which they lived. And she managed to foreground the individual experiences of the women whose records she could actually read in some substantive way that traditional historians might approach the record with as well. So I sort of took that perspective and I used it to arrange City of Refuge to attend to the silences. And what I mean by this is I really attempt to foreground records that make mention of enslaved people in the swamp or and or in some cases like uh, Moses Grandy's narrative records penned by enslaved people with an experience in the swamp themselves and I do that in order to sort of articulate narrate context before I turn to the way in which the company records the way in which I read the company records mm -hmm. to also provide evidence of uh, slave resistance or evidence of marinage. And, you know, I have to admit here that <laughs> City of Refuge could very well have been a different book because in the editorial process, my really, really insightful readers convinced me to go with a shorter book that focused a bit less on the day-to-day -day operations of these company slave labor camps because the letters do much more to reveal evidence of, for example, uh, the way in which the bare, uh, bare quarter people competed with the Dismal Swamp Company people, competed with the Dismal Swamp Canal people to claim 
trees, literally. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of mention of legal disputes about trees or promise or threat of legal dispute about trees, um, which in and of itself makes a great, I don't know, environmental history perhaps. Sure. <laughs> but could distract from the story that ultimately emerges in City of Refuge. And so my point in sort of bringing up that sort of behind the scenes editorial process is to really explain, I think, for, for your audience, the importance of care and intent in the way that you engage in archival sources, right? For me, what that meant was, sure, I have these company records. I have correspondences between company agents who often directly oversaw company slave labor camps and company members. For one, you have to think about audience. Uh, mm -hmm. Company agents are going to minimize at every turn. One might plausibly assume the extent to which resistance at any slave labor camp is really hindering operation because they're attempting to tell a story that there's still some value to be had here and I'm still in control of this situation. Uh, company members could care less about the excuses. They want to see the results. What was interestingly absent in company member letters was any form of suggestion of direct physical violence. What company members generally said is, as far as I could tell, what do we need to send to provision a slave labor camp in order to draw the enslaved people who uh, hide away into a slave labor camp, port, rum, et cetera. But even that didn't necessarily ensure that enslaved people would labor to the extent that company members or company overseers attempted or, or wished. And so reading in between the lines reveals that sort of story of accommodation and negotiation and agency really for enslaved people who are resisting or for Maroons who may be supporting them but it also has to be read in the context of recent scholarship that reminds us that silences themselves are also just not the story, right? Mm -hmm. Silences themselves must be read with care in order to ensure that balance in the story still can be achieved. And so that, that's one of the things that you really learn as someone who's interested in scholarship of Black resistance to sort of mitigate, right? Like, <laughs> I'm thinking of the mid 20th century uh, sort of fantastical stories about slave resistance that cast Madison Washington, for example, as a sole hero of the Creole revolt, which as recent scholarship has revealed is not exactly the case. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I, I tried to really bring balance and this I think harkens back to one of your earlier questions too, uh, in the lessons that a deep reading of the historiography as it stands might bring to bear for my approach to a relatively small zone of North America, but a significant one mm -hmm. um, that I saw to be understudied. But your zone does get bigger though, in, in a lot of ways, in part because one of the things you focus on in when you're looking at these sources and finding, reading between the lines, finding these acts of resistance, finding these, these negotiations and accommodations are the story of the boatmen, who I found particularly fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about these individuals? The enslaved watermen of the Tidewater region conceived broadly from the northern end of the Chesapeake Bay down to at least uh, the Albemarle Sound in North Carolina were vitally important to the economy's region and intimately engaged with its environment. They were often trusted to travel in pairs or singularly great distances in order to transport goods or transport people or transport correspondences and information from plantation to plantation. And as any student of Virginia's history particularly knows well, before well into the 19th century, Virginia's rivers were its highways. And so the particular story of the enslaved boatmen that I bring to bear in City of Refuge is actually drawn from a Harper's New Weekly Magazine article that also engaged with the story of the Great Dismal Swamp through the eyes of David Hunter Strother, uh, also known as Porta Crayon. He visited the Great Dismal Swamp in the mid 1850s in and of himself, intrigued by the story of slavery that continued to exist in the swamp but had these elements of black resistance and perhaps marinage. Uh, and he manages to secure 
a swamp tour, a, a tour of a small section of the swamp uh, with two boatmen who agreed to take him into the swamp so that he can observe its, its environment and perhaps its slave labor camps. As they're moving about the swamp and it's unclear which sector of the swamp we're, we're talking about here, but as he's moving about a sector of the swamp along a, a, a canal towpath, he observes an enslaved person or a maroon uh, emerging from the underbrush. And it becomes this image that, uh, well, he draws an image of this person that then becomes uh, attached to the article in Harper's New, New Weekly and titles it Usman, the Maroon in the Swamp. And so I could just off the top of my head, because I've been talking about this image recently, describe <laughs> briefly that Usman the Maroon appears in this image to be a middle-aged Black man who has matted white hair and a white beard, uh, white or gray, lighter colored hair, but not, you know, red or, or blonde or anything of that nature. He has physical features that are, as I described in City of Refuge, imposing but also reflective of the amount of hard physical labor he's probably undertaken as uh, an enslaved person in the swamp or frankly as a maroon in the swamp. And he's clothed in clothing that he could only have procured by way of an enslaved labor camp. And he's armed with a long gun that he could only have procured by way of a slave labor camp or from somehow outside the swamp. And he's cast in a background of thick vines and thick roots at his feet and Spanish moss that overhangs the part of the swamp underbrush out of which he emerges. And so David Hunter Strother writes for his audience in Harper's New Weekly that he turned to the enslaved boatmen after Usman disappears back into the swamp and asks them, well, who is this person? And all they, they mention is this person's name, Usman. They say no more. And so I really thought that an interesting way to capture the experiences of, or the blurred lines really, of slavery and marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp mm -hmm. through the eyes of a contemporary who by and large uh, himself is witness to this moment because he's engaging with the swamp's context of slavery as is re represented and reflected in the enslaved boatmen who lead him into the swamp. And so it's this really interesting way, I think, and other scholars have dealt with this too, right? But it's this, it's this really interesting way of bringing those complexities to light. And as you know, I closed the story ultimately in that year, 1856, in part because if the historiography of Black resistance in the American Revolution is deep and, and very difficult to, to wrangle, <laughs> the historiography of the Civil War period is, is just another ballgame that... <laughs> I leave to those who have that time. I'm ultimately, and still to this day, and, and really mystified by how Usman, as depicted by David Hunter Strother, in and of himself can be so clearly a representation of slavery and marinage in the swamp, even as it's also a reflection of archival silence because there's little else that we can know mm -hmm. about him. Well, speaking of finding time to do more, you are at the Washington Library right now in a research fellowship, and I gather you're not done with City of Refuge. And so can we have a little bit of a preview of what you're working on now and where you see this project going? Sure, sure. Thank you for asking, first of all. I have come to the Washington Library to research in the Bushrod Washington Family Papers, specifically looking for any evidence uh, written in the first hand or uh, directly relating to John Augustine Washington. John Augustine Washington, as many of you surely know, was George Washington's younger brother and perhaps his favorite <laughs> of his brothers. And I, I chuckle when I say that because I've been engaged in my time here reading the correspondences between John Augustine Washington and George Washington during the uh, Revolutionary War. And the affections with which they write to each other are clear. And part of the reason why John Augustine Washington records are housed in the Bushrod Washington records is because of course, Bushrod is one of John Augustine's sons and ultimately becomes one of George's favorite nephews. So setting all that aside, I found in my initial research of the library's holding that the library holds several records that I think will be very useful for me. One of them is John Augustine Washington's will. Another is a ledger in which there are 
lists of, or a list, I should say, of the name of enslaved people that John Augustine Washington himself held in the 1780s as the end of his life drew near. I can't say that there are any direct relations to John Augustine Washington's time in the Great Dismal Swamp at this time. And, and frankly, after having conducted some of this research, I doubt that I'll find them. I think that John Augustine's time in the Great Dismal Swamp ends in the early 1770s when he returns to Westmoreland County to lead the uh, local committees of correspondence and uh, safety. But John Augustine Washington is the first and perhaps the most prominent person who has direct oversight of Dismal Plantation and who engages directly with the Dismal Swamp Company's first efforts to change the swamp landscape into a plantation. So I thought it interesting first to start with John Augustine Washington as I try to conceive of a story that more tightly treats the revolutionary period, but that can still tell us something more about Dismal Plantation and specifically about the enslaved people who were there. Um, so that's my earliest idea is to, to really do more with the story of revolutionary continuity uh, and to attach that to recent scholarship that, for example, is cited by David Waltz-Stripeser and others who recently put forth that special joint edition of the William and Mary Quarterly and the Journal of the American Republic, uh, the Early Republic uh, in 2017. Mm -hmm. They raised interesting questions about ways that we could frame the American Revolutionary Period. And I think, at least in my early research, that this may be one of those stories. Well, that sounds good to me. And I'm excited to read what's coming next because I really enjoyed reading City of Refuge. And so Marcus, I just want to thank you very much for allowing us to impose on your time. I know you're, you're, uh, you've got a lot on your plate and so you're really looking forward to getting some research. So thanks for sparing an hour or two to talk with us and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Jim, I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. I, I appreciate it very much. You're very kind. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.